start on a little little intro while, while you're downloading. Um, uh, this is about a, uh, a hazard flood analysis that we did for Minot, North Dakota. Um, some of you um, may be familiar with this flood. It was uh, back in um, uh, June of this year. It was, it was a pretty wide wide scale flood. There, the levees in Minot were overtopped. They didn't actually breach, but the uh, there was a dam upstream that. Uh, was um, way over capacity, and uh, the Army Corps had to release a lot of water from this dam, and then there was a lot of rain also at the same time. So the levees in this town were, um, they were uh, overtopped by, um, in some areas, like five, five six feet um, higher than the actual levees themselves. So what we wanted to do um, was estimate as accurately as possible and as quickly as possible the number of structures inundated, the financial impacts, and um, uh, residential versus commercial impacts, because a, a lot of these neighborhoods were uh, evacuated prior to flooding. So um, we wanted to help kind of gauge the recovery effort, but also sort of paint a picture on how widespread wide, uh, the damages were. So the First uh, slide on um, the presentation is an oblique aerial view of city of Minot, and the uh, so you can see really the the severity of the flooding in uh, some of these neighborhoods. Um, a lot of the floodwaters went up to uh, the roofs of these houses in some areas, and. Um, uh, we estimated um, almost uh, approximately 4,000 structures were impacted in this flood. So if you go to slide two, um, this shows um, a map of uh, what we call our FEMA declaration map. So whenever there's a, a FEMA presidential disaster declaration, we'll make a map of all the counties that are eligible for federal assistance and um, whether they're eligible for individual assistance, public assistance, or both. So um, you can see here how widespread the flooding was in North Dakota this year. It, it covered a large, large portion of the state. And um, a lot of the flooding had already happened by the time uh, Minot experienced their worst flooding. So this was a, a prolonged flood fight in North Dakota this year um, for this spring flooding. So if you go to slide three, um, we have some bullet points of the, the approach that we took to try and assess the flooding damage and why not um, as accurately and as rapidly as possible. And we, we did this using a, a, a few different resources. Um, one of those was USGS um, high water mark collection. So we we worked with the USGS to collect high water marks of the uh, crest of the flooding um, in areas on both sides of the river, and this kind of this enabled us to um, choose which of the, the uh, user depth grids from uh, the Army Corps of Engineers we would use for um, depicting the depth and the extent of flooding, and I'll speak on that um, a little bit after the and then the coming slides. We also used pictometry, oblique aerial imagery, and we worked with a company called uh, um, New Light and one of their, their uh, subcontractors, uh, ImageCat, for a 
damage assessment for some damage assessment assistance on this as well. And the results that we got from this were the number of structures impacted by the flooding and then also um, has a site-specific derived um, financial impacts. So structure by structure economic losses um, from house to house and business to business, etc. So if you go to slide four, um, this shows a picture of the USGS crew in, uh, in the areas around Minot and some of their equipment that they use to gather the high water marks. And uh, so these, these high water marks help us to calibrate the H&H, &H, the hydrology and hydro hydrologic model outputs to best determine the depth at structure. So for this event, we, we had some unique resources uh, that we don't always have in, in a flooding response. Uh, the um, Army Corps of Engineers and also um, a uh, local engineering firm named um, called Houston Engineering were creating um, GeoHecRAS H&H um, modeled uh, depth grids for um, the different um, hydrograph predictions. So when, when they predicted discharge went up and went down, they would create another model. So the intent was we had all these different models for different discharges based on predictions, and the intent was to use the high water marks to calibrate um, after the cresting went down, which of those models was the closest to the actual observed flooding. And while the USGS were out collecting these high water marks, um, some of our FEMA staff was with them as well, and um, they went out with the USGS staff and helped to visually identify which areas in the, um, the predicted inundation models were actually inundated and which were not inundated based on local flood fighting measures. And the uh, high watermark collection approach was um, we were kind of um, uh, working off of past experiences in Region 4 that uh, uh, Gene Longenecker had uh, had success with in uh, Paducah, Kentucky as well, um, for getting these um, USGS high watermark collection teams out in the field um, really fast. So, so the key is to get these crews out there as quickly as possible so we can collect these high watermarks when the water's at its crest. So if you go to slide five next, um, and this is a picture of the pictometry oblique imagery sensor. And uh, what what the pictometry oblique sensor is, it's actually a, a five-angle aerial imagery sensor um, put in a Cessna, and they fly in a flight path. Um, around an area that we define and then they are actually they're able to take photos and aerial imagery uh, from five different angles for every flight line so the end product is it's based it's web based and you can actually zoom into a house you know similar to google earth something like that but you get an oblique angled view of each structure and you can actually pan around to all sides of the structure too so you can see damages in the back or or different um traits about the house in the back and the front and the side, et cetera.
So next, if you go to slide six, this is um, one of the preliminary map products that we made, and um, uh, using the um, site-specific data we were creating, and also the H and H models and satellite imagery as well. So the satellite imagery on here, you can see, was um, collected by GOI, and you can actually see large portions of the city that were inundated based on these, these satellite photos. So we then overlaid the um, the uh, depth grids obtained from the uh, Army Corps of Engineers over these structures, and we were able to apply a depth at each structure from these H&H models, and then we also um, would QC these to uh, flooded areas and, and areas that, that weren't flooded um, based on field observations and then the, uh, the satellite imagery as well. So the, the first snapshot on uh, slide six is Western Minot, and a lot of the inset photos that you can see are examples of the pictometry oblique aerial imagery photos. And <coughs> up in the type, top, top right corner, um, there are uh, uh, there's a table of number of structures inundated and the depth of water at each structure. So then next, as you go through slides um, seven, eight, and nine, these are just different areas of the city and their impacts. But if you look at um, slide seven, for instance, there's a large section in the um, top right, the northeast part of the map, that is designated as uh, confirmed protected. So this is an area where flood protection measures actually um, held fast. And um, the Army Corps model would have showed a, a large portion of this part of town as inundated, where it actually wasn't inundated um, due to the uh, local flood control measures holding. So what we did for the model's outputs then was uh, we clipped this out of the depth grid that we were going to use for our uh, loss estimations. So we weren't actually measuring losses towards houses in this in this area. And then there are a lot of smaller areas in in the map too on, on slide seven where like ring dikes held um, um, and uh, uh, smaller levees, flood control measures all, all held and kept, kept certain areas of the town safe. Now, if you go to slide 10, this is where we um, got into the damage assessment portion. So at this point, we, we had a good grasp on the number of structures inundated, the depth of water at those structures, um, the areas that were protected. But in order to run actual financial losses on this, you need to know um, a lot of has a specific um, Building attributes about these about these structures, whether or not they're resident residential or commercial or industrial, and then um, further detailed um, specific occupancies like um, once you know that they're residential, whether it's single family home, duplex, um, multi unit, etc., and um, first floor height, foundation type, year built, building value, all all of these factors are taken into account when you're running um, a site-specific um, financial losses against, against structures. So 
One thing we, one challenge we run into in emergency management, especially when we're trying to do a rapid turnaround for a large area, is you know, how do we collect all these attributes and how do we do it as accurately as possible for an area this size? Um, you know, assessors data is, is one option, um, but a lot of times you'll have some of these attributes and not, not all of these attributes, or it can take quite a bit of time to obtain the assessor's data and format it and get it into a hazardous-ready format. So um, these are challenges we face sometimes. So what we did was um, we worked through FEMA headquarters and we um, were able to work with ImageCat in New Light using the Army Corps depth grids, the high water marks, the oblique aerial imagery, and um, and some of, some of the assessors' data that we had already, and they were able to put a, a large team to work um, in a real quick turnaround, I think it was about three or four days, on gathering all of those hazard-specific attributes for all these structures. And the next few slides we'll go over, um, talk about how they did that. So on, on slide 10, um, this shows when we started talking to ImageCat, uh, we had to define our analysis study area. And the way that we did that was we just selected all of the U.S. national grid cells that overlapped with the um, areas that were flooded based on the uh, satellite imagery and the H&H models. So we kind of refined them uh, down to this area of interest. And if you go to slide 11, this is an example of the um, user-defined depth grid that we used as our input hazard to the flood analysis. So the the areas in blue were the areas protected shapefile that that we created by working with our field crews and um, and that having them visually identify areas that were protected. And then the dark orange and reddish colored. Um, Flooding inundation was the raster data set that we used as our flood hazard input after the areas protected were clipped out. So next, if, uh, if you go to slide 12, um, what we worked out with, with ImageCat and, um, was a uh, rapid online product development to support widespread interpretation, so we needed to communicate these losses as quickly and as effectively as possible to all of our field crews, like our individual assistance inspectors, um, incident commanders, and um, and so they had to develop a, a detailed protocol on how to add all these attributes to all these structures. So if you go to slide 13, um, this shows an example. Um, we um, we were trying to work with ImageCat to use um, any and every asset that we had available, be it remote sensing, um, data, um, even even something as, uh, as, as basic as Google Earth for areas where the um, oblique imagery wasn't um, the best based on um, uh, you know, sun glare or angle or lighting or, or anything like that. So if you go to slide 14, this is an example of how they collected some of these building 
specific attributes for the hazardous model. So in the inundated areas, we would have a, a point on every structure in the flooded area. But then we were missing a lot of those key attributes. So in the um, hazardous flood depth damage functions, you need to know things like whether or not a house has a basement uh, or a crawl space or if it's um, built um, flab on grade. Um, and uh, the first floor height of the house, so that kind of wraps into the, the foundation types as well. So if you don't have this information for all these structures, then you have to make assumptions and your, your accuracy of the model can, can decrease. So if you go to slide 15, um, this is another example of um, how, how we gathered some more of those attributes. So, um, for instance, an, another key attribute you need to have for site-specific hazard flood analysis is the number of stories in the structure. So, you can see on this slide, the uh, photo on the top looks like that house only has one story, but with the uh, pictometry, uh, multi-angled oblique imagery, we could actually pan around and look at the back of that house and then um, when you look at the back of that house, you can see that it actually has two stories. So if you go to uh, slide 16, um, uh, the Im image cat analysis, I, th I think they had 15 or 20 people working on this in order to turn it around in a quickly or in a quick manner. And um, so a lot of it, what they did where we didn't have data was using uh, visual cues to measure uh, first floor elevation, um, these different building-specific attributes. And um, and, uh, and in the end, there were outliers, you know, where at, at short distances or with roof overhangs um, or in difficult ter terrain, you know, some, some of these attributes were, really, were harder to get to. If you go to slide 17, it shows some of the functionality of the pictometry interface. And this was a real rare instance as well because um, um, it was a kind of a, a lucky coincidence for this event. The, um, the Ward County, North Dakota, actually had pictometry flown for the entire county. Um, I think it was in 2010. So we had a unique ability in, in this instance to have both, both a, a pre- and post-event um, oblique aerial imagery uh, view of all these structures as well. And um, so one one option you have in the pictometry interface is the ability to um, measure um, heights, distances, width um, on the uh, oblique imagery. It's actually tied, tied to a, an elevation data set. So this uh, slide 17 shows an example of where um, um, they would measure from the ground to the top of um, a door um, in the uh, pre-event aerial imagery, and then they would measure from the top of the water to the top of the door in the post-event imagery, and they can compare those to get the uh, depth of water at that structure. So then next, um, once they uh, turned around this damage assessment, we had to figure out, okay, you know, we have all this great information, and um, so what, what are we going to do with this? 
to uh, help the um, you know the emergency management process. And and one thing we used it for was to prioritize um, um, certain neighborhoods and certain key structures um, for um, response and recovery efforts. And um, there was one um, neighborhood called Oak Park that had the deepest water and the highest highest damages. And um, and then there was also uh, 12 key structures that were identified for in-depth analysis. So if you go to slide 19, this shows a list of the priority structures. And um, these are listed as priority structures based on um, their importance to the city, but also their uh, impacts on the town for the recovery effort. Notice there are there are a few um, um, commercial businesses on here too, but um, a lot of these are large employers in this town. So this you know these businesses being detrimentally impacted can impact a long-term recovery um, long-term recovery efforts. If you go to slide 20, um, this shows an example of one of the priority structures. So these priority structures were given. Um, a full assessment like this with both a pre and a post event um, screenshot, the hazardous occupancy, uh, the water depths at first floor, square footage, etc. And the one here in uh, slide 20 is uh, a Holiday Inn, and you can see pre event and post event, um, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, pre flooding and post flooding, and how they um, actually. Uh, tried to build uh, flood protection measures around that structure, but but they failed. Next, if you go to slide 21, um, once we ran our uh, assessment data and the uh, flood hazard input through the hazardous uh, site-specific uh, flood loss methodology, we were able to come up with um, actual financial impact predictions for this town. And, and we were able to turn this around in about a week, about a week after the event. So this was, this was really helpful um, to have it in that quick of a turnaround um, to predict the long-term implications of this flood. And it's broken out into residential and commercial as well. And you can see the residential total damages were uh, over $211 million in the um, Commercial industrial were 77 million. So that's um, that about sums up the the work that we did for Minot. We had a, a few more slides on some other um, uh, flood approaches that we've done in, in FEMA Region 8. But um, uh, this might be a good time if anyone has any questions about the Minot analysis. Um, feel free to jump in. Jesse, this is Tom Durham. Uh, again, great work in Region 8. Uh, I'm glad I'm listening in. Um, a question I have um, is, and I just returned from Vermont, and we're working on a mission planning team for FEMA uh, for the floods up there. And the question is, uh, at what point, or, or first of all, did you all work very closely 
uh, with the IA folks? We did. And were you all part of the mission planning team? Um, and was this information used in the mission planning process? Yeah, it was it was used uh, for a few different things. Um, uh, we worked closely with IA um, while we were developing this um, this data to kind of help uh, prioritize inspections. So there, there were like so there were some neighborhoods where it was it was really obvious that the entire neighborhood was um, you know inundated by like 15 feet. So then you know instead of having to send someone to all those homes, they could actually prioritize in some of the areas where it was a little less less certain. Okay. The actual impacts. And we did communicate this to all the response and operations staff as well. And um, one, one area where it came up um, really helpful is, you know, a lot of these neighborhoods, um, you know, they had mandatory evacuations. A lot of people weren't um, allowed to go back into these neighborhoods for a while because cause they were unsafe. But a lot of people still, they, they wanted to see what had happened to their to their homes and what you know what level of damage actually happened. So we actually worked with um, um, uh, I think it was uh, Dewberry. We put up a website okay. with the um, pictometry data, so um, people could actually type in their home address and uh, zoom in and see their house. You know, at the peak of the flooding and see the level. Of flooding, and this actually helped um, alleviate a lot of pressure off our field crews because you know um, it, it kind of it, it waved away that level of uncertainty. Like, well, is my house impacted? Is it not? So when people could actually see that it definitely was impacted, they you know they could kind of start planning. Okay, I mean, I'm definitely not going to be able to go back in there for a while, you know. And and it, it just uh, you know you know even though it's a heartbreaking thing to see, and you know it's it's good for people to have as much information as they can. Well, that's great to hear. I, I did send um, the presentation to um, to Dewberry, and I asked that question knowing that they were the IA contractor on that particular mission. And, right. Uh, he said, yeah, I'll check in and see if we use this information, but uh, I'm glad they did because it's um, exactly where it needs to go, I think, to, to help both the contractors and FEMA. Sure, sure. Again, great, great work. Great. Well, Thank you, Tom. Terrific work. Hi, Jesse. This is Alex from Region 3. Alex. Hi. Um, quick question. Going back to the slides, like I guess they're like 7 through 10 in that area there, um, the water depths that are listed in the legend there, were those the high water marks or were they from the depth grid? That's, it's a little both. So we used the high water mark to pick the depth grid that was um, closest to the actual event. So we used that to ground truth these depth grids based on the uh, the uh, the peak peak flood surface elevation of the corresponding depth grids and the, the um, high water mark elevation from area to area. So we used the high water marks to pick the depth grid that was closest to reality, and then we used those depth grids to apply um, the depth to each structure. So were these depth grids already in place? Was like you know ten year, fifty year, hundred year type of thing, and you had those already built? Before the event, or we um, were receiving those from the Army Corps and Houston Engineering um, through a, a collaboration on their side, and they they were doing them in the days up, you know, coming up to the event. Okay. Thank so you. they they weren't built long term, 
you know, before the event, but um, they, they came out really close, like right before the event, as the different forecasts would change. And were the damage assessments coming out of Hazus uh, comparable to reality? They they were actually they they um, um, cross checking the analysis results to actual reported damages takes a while and it can be challenging. So the best way that we do it is we total up um, the uh, individual assistance claims and our public assistance claims to our modeled um, amounts, and the um, hazardous amounts were, were really close. But okay. that's. Taking this like a step further, because um, we just had an exercise here in Region 3 in the RRCC. Somebody wanted to go down the road of doing what they call virtual PDAs. And um, in real time, it's kind of difficult, I guess. But um, seeing the pictometry, seeing that you can do some measurements within the tool and all that, um, how realistic would it be in real time to do something like that, in your opinion? It, it, it's definitely realistic. It's definitely possible. The, the only thing, you know, we have to kind of manage expectations. We can't do this for every event. Um, it has to be a large scope event due to some of the costs, but also um, uh, some areas where, you know, the, uh, you know, like the assessor's data is not available or the H&H models, we don't always have access to things like that. So it's definitely realistic. Um, you know, we turned this whole thing around in about a week, which is pretty close to real time. And it was, um, based, and it was based mostly on um, having really good data to start with, I guess. It was having having the good data to start with, and um, yeah, and then being able to quickly acquire good data as well. Okay. Thanks a lot. Sure. Anyone else have any questions? Okay. Um, I was going to go uh, over a, a couple more quick topics that we talked about at the um, HAZUS conference. Um, it's somewhat related to our, our uh, presentation as well. But um, if you go to uh, slide 22, next um, I wanted to talk real briefly about um, a comparison between site-specific and aggregated flood loss modeling approaches. So this this was a, a really detailed site-specific flood loss approach. And site-specific meaning we measured the flood damage structure by structure based on um, key detailed attributes. The other approach that is uh, definitely quicker to turn around um, would be an aggregated flood loss modeling approach, which is where um, it has a flood model estimates damages um, um, census block by census block based on um, an area weighting scheme that we'll go over. If we go to slide 23, um, this is another example from North Dakota, and this is a uh, another flooding depth grid that we used as a, um, a flood hazard input for the city of Fargo. And if you go to slide 24, you can see that the drastic difference in losses um, generated by the area weighting scheme and then also the uh, uh, the uh, site-specific analysis approach. And um, I'll show you on slide 25 the reason why these damages can be so different. Um, so on slide 25, for instance, the top left slide, 
so as an example in Fargo of the site-specific loss approach. So the site-specific loss approach, you put a point on every structure in the impacted area, and um, you attach those key attributes. Um, in Fargo, we were actually lucky to have uh, really great parcel data with um, um, almost all of the key attributes that we needed. And then the few of them that we didn't have, we had to um, estimate using RS means approaches. But so, for instance, the top left um, screenshot, there are uh, about eight structures in that flooding depth grid that um, show up as yellow. And those are structures that would actually be flooded in an event like this. But if you look at the bottom left screenshot, um, this shows an example of the area weighting estimation, and um, and that's the uh, light yellow um, boxes, uh, an actual census block um, for this this neighborhood. So the area weighting loss estimation approach would um, actually estimate um, flood damages to a certain percentage of this of the total building stock in this um, flood uh, in this census block. Um, where that might not actually be the case in uh, in reality. When, uh, a lot of this can be done in uh, drainage ditches or um, in streets, whereas you know the house is uh, set up higher. And then the uh, bottom right snapshot shows an example of a little more zoomed in um, of a neighborhood where you've got a few cul-de-sacs and the houses are actually um, high and dry, where the uh, the um, area waiting approach would actually estimate losses to these houses. So a lot of this has to do with data availability, but um, we have been working with um, some of our colleagues at the Pacific Disaster Center in, uh, in uh, Maui, and uh, they actually have some, uh, some good ideas on some ways that we could enhance the accuracy of the, um, the area waiting scheme approach. And, um, if you go to slide 26, um, it's called dasymmetric mapping, and um, the way that we could um, enhance the accuracy of the area weighting approach is um, uh, through dasymmetric mapping. And what dasymmetric mapping is, is actually redistributes data from one spatial unit, like a census block or census tract, to a new spatial geography using an ancillary data source. So. Um, the, the ancillary data source that we could use for the U.S. would be like the uh, LULC land use land cover um, database. And what that is is it's got um, uh, actual land use data information about um, uh, whether it's high density population buildings, low density, non-urban, and they're in a much smaller geographic area than, than census blocks. So they take the, you know, for instance, on this, this slide, you know, a thousand people from a census block, and they redistribute those people spatially over that census block based on this land use land cover, and then you could redistribute those people based on a population grid. So, for instance, uh, in this example, it would apply, um, um, you know, a certain number of people per land use land cover grid from that total of 1,000 people um, based on the uh, land use determination from that, that cell. So if you go to uh, 
slide 27, this shows an example of stoichiometric mapping and how, how this can um, greatly change loss estimations in the flood model for the better. And um, so, for instance, um, the picture in the top left is the census block population of um, a mountainous area in, um, in Hawaii. And you can see a lot of these census tracts are really long, oblongated census tracts. So as far as the census data, the um, population for that block, you know, using the area weighting scheme, which would be assumed to be uh, spread uniformly throughout that block. But that's not always the case. So if you see the, uh, take a look at the aerial imagery snapshot of the same area, you can see that a lot of the, the building, the population are all down um, at the base of those mountains and along the coast. And this directly correlates to the land use land cover data set as well. So it, it shows that the LULC data actually does, it does a good job uh, of showing where people actually are as opposed to aren't. And then um, the population grid is an actual adjustment of that census block population based on the DASI metric approach. So if you go to slide 28, here are a, a few more examples of DASI metric distribution. Um, these are two examples, um, one of uh, Maui and Oahu, and their uh, total population based on census blocks. But if you look at slide 29, you can see the DASI metric population adjustment of where these people actually are based on land use land cover. And it kind of correlates you know, um, a little more accurately about where people in the built environment actually are. So they're, they're along the coast, um, they're in cities, but they, they can still all, all of these populations can actually still remain within those, those census blocks. So if you go to slide 30, um, here are a couple more examples. Um, there's a side-by-side -side example of the difference between Oahu's uh, total population based on census blocks as opposed to the dasymetric approach where that population is shifted. So if we could somehow wrap this into the loss estimation portion of, of hazards, we would have be um, showing a much better representation of where the built environment actually was as opposed to census block by census block. And slide 32 shows a, another zoomed-in example of a comparison between census blocks and tsunami evacuation zones and then the asymmetric adjustment of that, of where the people in the, the buildings actually are. And that's, that's about it. Does anybody have any more questions? Okay. Well, great. Okay, that's a fantastic presentation. Oh, thank you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, anything else about using hazards in the region, or? Um. Well, in, in region eight, we do we use hazards quite a bit for. Um, risk analysis and um, uh, 
PDM planning, which is pre-disaster mitigation planning, assessing risks, and um, and then we also um, use it in a, a response capacity as well. Um, so for you know, like for instance, uh, with Hurricane Irene, um, we ran uh, incur back wind losses um, as the advisories come in, and we commute those up to command staff, and then um, we also run um, you know has a shake map uh, analysis for big earthquakes and things like that. So that's, yeah. that's great. About it. Thank Is you, everybody. Any questions for Jesse? Yeah. All right. Well, if there are other questions, then we'll um, wrap it up for today. Jesse, thank you so much for participating this way. I really appreciate it. You did a fantastic job. Um, thank you. Appreciate 21 it. 21 people on the call. So even if they're not asking a lot of questions, they were definitely interested. Yeah, Jesse, can I, I ask a question? Yes. Sure. Yeah, in, in regards to the possibilities you, you discussed briefly with the, the the other person who questioned, when Dan made a question in regards to doing this virtual PA, uh, how would you distinguish PA eligible structures? Since there's no way that I'm aware of of um, you know separating a PA eligible structure from a non you know public assistance eligible you know uh, building. He's talking about uh, public assistance specific. So you know, I mean, you can refine your your site-specific analysis to um, actually like publicly owned structures, and then that's where you'll need those uh, those key information inputs like um, assessors' data to tell you whether or not it's a a government building, an educational building, things like that, and differentiate between that and and residential. So you would just limit the uh, uh, the study to just um, you know publicly owned buildings. And you would take everything else out of the uh, analysis, is that? Yeah, or you could do one big analysis of, of all the structures, but then separate out the results for just the publicly owned buildings. And that's that's where the key information is going to come in um, as an important input. Okay. So like a lot, a lot of cities where you have great parcel data, you can actually tell, you know, structure by structure, using imagery, assessor's data, whether or not it's publicly or privately owned. But then some some areas you won't have any parcel data at all, and it could be more challenging. Okay, thank you. Sure. Do we have any other questions? All right, then uh, that's it for today. Jesse, thank you so much. And everyone who participated, thank you for asking questions. Thank you, Jamie. Yes,